improvise a silent sonata. Klaxons, flutes, cellos are all quiet, while the only orchestrated sound is the wind, vibrating at different frequencies like a whistle, like a single instrument describing the perilous winds of fate. Today on Arts and Matters, we'll be talking with writer Joe Mead about his novel, Book of Extraordinary Tragedies, published by Akashic Books. Catastrophe will never. The novel takes us on a sympathetic journey with an Eastern European family, prodigies all, growing up and confronted with tragedy. Everything important is part of some larger tragedy the beautiful failure of all human beings struggling against their own glorious mistakes. Extraordinary tragedies. Let you die. And writer Joe Mina on arts and letters. From the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and welcome to Arts and Letters, a program providing opportunities for the celebration of the arts and humanities. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with writer Joe Mino about his book of extraordinary tragedies, a novel about music and loss, the outrageousness of ordinary life, the role of imagination, and amazing compositions. I think of another amazing composition. Why not a symphony of only beginnings? with the instruments having to start over and over the way so many families from so many countries have, to begin again in a new place, in a different land, with a different language, in a different landscape, with a different sky hanging over your head, to be laughed at, joked about, mistreated, forced to live in a certain neighborhood, forced to work at a certain job the rest of your life. The joy and frustration and absolute silence of having to bend your life to fit into someone else's world Where's the musical composition that describes all of that? At the center of the novel is Alex, a musical prodigy, who, along with his complex family, his sister, odd mother, and fatalist brother, confront hearing loss. The older sister popped up, and once she showed up in the story of this character, Isabel, she has her own challenges, and she had a daughter who's three or four years old in the book, and she has her own issues with hearing loss. And as soon as I kind of identify that, as soon as it was a discovery, like I hadn't planned on that happening, it just was something that came up in a scene, you know, where the teacher from school calls and says, oh, she she didn't do well on this hearing test. Then suddenly it became an opportunity to talk about a lot of these challenges. They were fresh. They were questions I personally did not have an answer to and was really struggling with, like, how can someone who's in love with music and uses music to engage with the world, how can someone use music when they can't access it in quite the same way? Orfeo is booming through the house. I'm struggling to do a single pull-up before work. My sister calls and says she's not feeling well and then asks if I can drop my niece off at daycare. I slowly catch my breath and tell her I'll be there soon. I put on my red hat and my winter coat with the Polish flag on the back, grab my bicycle, and then pedal toward my sister's apartment on 95th. I pretend I'm a car and ride in the street much to the annoyance of other vehicles. Someone honks their horn and shouts, get out of the way. As I ride, I ignore all the noise, all the distractions, and try to imagine an entirely new improvised composition. So let's part the curtain and peer inside a family whose tragedies are both great and small, faded and self-inflicted 
as they come to understand the rarest kind of silence. Extraordinary Tragedies and writer Joe Mino on Arts and Letters. Domino, Book of Extraordinary Tragedies. Welcome to Arts and Letters. Oh, thanks so much, Brad. It's such a pleasure to be back. I am so looking forward to this. And I've told you, I think this new book may be your best. Oh, that's really kind. I really appreciate it. You know, this was a book I started working on about seven years ago. And I was drawing from these different pieces of short stories, some nonfiction, even part of a a script at one point to build the story of this young man, Alex, who's in his 20s and lives on the south side of Chicago. And he's a former classical musician who lives with hearing loss and is trying to find a way to figure out a future for himself and also support his family. I like the way you set up the book. You set it up as a kind of a symphony. Well, you know, it took me multiple drafts to try and figure out what the what the right shape or structure for this book might be. And, you know, I kind of landed all these different kinds of forms and and structures. And at some point, maybe after the third or, or fourth full draft, I realized how central music was. And particularly in, in Alex's case, he's he's Eastern European and how powerful composed Eastern European classical music is. And then I suddenly started to think, well, why why not just build this like a four-part symphony? And once I kind of landed on that idea, it gave me the opportunity to start kind of building out the emotional tone and the stakes and where the book starts to build. It gave me kind of a container to put all these different scenes and, and different moments in. start with movement one, beginnings, endings, and other musical figures. And could we just start with uh, just a little bit of reading from chapter one? Begin in F-sharp minor with the symphony of ghost notes. Why not a concerto that details every known silence or the most noiseless overture in all of history. Let the trumpets go mute and the cymbals be still. Let the lull from the concert hall destroy every awkward moment, every long-standing argument, with cannons raging in unheard fury, and the closing note being fireworks exploding soundlessly in the sky so that everything finally goes quiet. What would Mozart have to say to that? I love that. It's it's just beautiful. And it deals, as this book does, with sound and silence, with music and deafness, and with tragedy. Could you talk a little bit about the intersection of sound and silence? Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks, Brad. So for about the last 18 years, I've lived um, with hearing loss. So I have moderate hearing loss. And this is really the first time in the world of fiction that I started to try to document that experience. And for Alex, he's a young man in his 20s who, like myself, was a musician and who, you know, I feel like I use music as a way to find meaning in the world to give me a a sense of understanding of different things that are happening in my own life. And so Alex is a very similar person And it's really the one thing that he goes back to when something goes wrong with his sister or his mother, or there's some other tragedy that befalls the family. It's through music that he finds some sort of purpose or meaning or understanding. 
And I think as I was struggling with my own hearing loss, I focused so much on what I was unable to hear. I went through this period where, you know, after I got this diagnosis, I, I almost felt like time was running out. And I decided to like make a list of all my favorite records and sit down and listen to all of them like the way, um, you know, you would to capture, you know, the final moments before your hearing is gone. And I wanted to hear these records in their entirety. And as I was listening to like the Beatles White Album or a John Coltrane record, I realized that there were notes or kind of musical moments that I I just, I was missing them. And then that made me kind of panic. And it was like grabbing on to this thing and trying to hold on so tight to something that I wasn't even enjoying these records. And I realized that at some point, instead of focusing on what I was not able to hear, what was gone, I had to try and look for what was new or different. To really focus on silence. And so I started this, this kind of process of like, in small moments throughout the day, documenting how my hearing was different. And because I have tinnitus, there's these different pitches that I hear that sometimes overlap or change music or people's voices around me. And in, instead of it being an obstacle, I, I decided I was going to let those noises or new sounds be something that I was going to investigate or, or be interested in. And so that's a huge part of, of the book that Alex says he's struggling with his own hearing loss, he, he starts to document these different silences, these different uh, moments of quiet, even th imagining like, what's the color of this silence or what's the shape that this silence reminds me of? And that, you know, really comes out of my own struggle to accept and really focus on being in the moment, what I'm hearing now differently instead of what's gone. You're listening to Arts and Letters. We're talking with writer Joe Mino, about his book of extraordinary tragedy. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Arts and Letters. We're talking with writer Joe Mino about his novel, Book of Extraordinary Tragedies. I sometimes imagine my family as four different record players, all playing different kinds of music, all as loudly as possible, all at exactly the same time. Classical, jazz, pop, 70s, me, my mother, my sister, my brother, and then there's Jazzy, another record player, playing its own music as well. And then I begin to understand why someone might feel overwhelmed by all the noise sometimes, all the different personalities, why someone might prefer silence. I'm particularly interested in this. I think we all do it. And you can talk about it in terms of the characters, but also just your own philosophy. Because philosophy so underpins this book. We typically and often self-sabotage because we're afraid, perhaps, of what success will bring. Right. So, you know, all of the characters in the book have this thing they're in love with, this thing that they excel, you know, at. And Alex and his music or Isabel, you know, had the chance to go to MIT to study math as kind of a prodigy. Uh, Daniel, who's 13, is really academically gifted and he wants to be on this academic bowl team. But each in their own ways, they end up making some decision that ends up being kind of a self-sabotaging maneuver I don't know. I find that very familiar. And I feel like it's something a lot of people participate in and, and can relate to that it's not so much the world that's against us. It's that we ourselves, and I think the more intelligent sometimes you are, the more obstacles you are willing to set up for yourself. And sometimes your, you know, your ability to outthink or outmaneuver or catastrophize, or think of, you know, all the different ways this thing can go wrong. Let's hear some more reading from Alex's point of view. I'll be honest, if I'm gonna get my hopes up, I'll be betting on the other team to win. 
I don't gamble, it takes luck to hit the jackpot But what certain are the suckers paying in? Maybe one day, like a bolt of lightning Some happy ending will crack into this town If you don't like those chances I began losing my hearing when I was 10. Catastrophe will never let you down. I first started missing certain words, then certain notes, then entire frequencies by the age of 12. I'm not clairvoyant, I'm as clueless as the next kid. Raised on tough love, cigarettes, and Mickey D's. I can't tell. look of empathetic disappointment on my music teacher's face was the hardest thing to take. No one knew why or how it happened, if it was from some accident or from some virus or was possibly genetic, passed down from generation to generation through my family, alongside mythical stories of Poland and Yugoslavia. I don't know any sign language, I'm embarrassed to admit. I don't like talking about my hearing loss, but it makes it easier when other people know. Most of the time, I just pretend to understand what everyone is saying. I used to wonder, is there some celestial reason Nothing goes the way I plan, except it does I gun the engine, drive the road to disappointment Point my compass toward disaster just And we had talked about this a little just personally, and I found it kind of fascinating, and I'm so um, pleased that you're willing to talk about this, that you said you kind of hid your hearing loss or you hide your hearing loss from people, when in fact you know that logically it would help others understand what the issues are if you're, they think, oh, he's rude, he's ignoring us, or he doesn't understand. Tell us a little bit about that because it must be you know difficult being a writer one because it's all about hearing whether it's internal external and two just kind of a day-to-day way of being but hiding that I think you know there's just so much hubris involved and so in my early 30s when my wife would point out that I was missing certain words and I think the best way to understand the way my hearing works, I, I can still hear low frequencies really well, and I can also hear very high, high-pitched frequencies. It's the mid-range, right where the human voice happens to land. And it's just ironic that those sounds are the sounds I have the hardest time hearing. And so I think for a long time, I, I just try to ignore it. Uh, I finally got my hearing tested and then tested again. And I'll be honest, Brad, when I went in, you know, I did like an online hearing test before this test at uh, at this great hospital in Northwestern here in Chicago. And I like did this online hearing test and it said I had like perfect hearing. Hmm. And so I went in to do this, this hearing test and um, in my mind, I don't know why, but I had this idea. It's like, well, what's the worst number? 
like, what's the worst percentage they're going to say? And I had this number of like 17, like the, they'll say you've lost like 17. Like I can, it was just random. Yeah. Like you've lost 17%. Like I just arrived at it as kind of like bargaining. And, um, you know, when the audiologist came came back after doing this really in-depth hearing test, she just kind of offhandedly remarked, oh, you know, you've lost about 46% of your hearing. Wow. And I think she thought I had already known that. And I, I was just, I was just shocked. Wow. Like I literally, I could feel the blood leave my face. And, and um, you know, it took me a while to accept that and then to share it. You know, I told my wife and then I had to sit down and tell my kids and say, you know, I, I have this this hearing loss and it's it's not going to go away. It's kind of part of my life now. And my two kids who were like 10 and 12 at the time, they looked at me and they're like, yeah, we know, dad. Like they they were fully aware of it. And so I think so much of it just had to do with my own ego mm-hmm. and my fear and whether you think of it as, you know, internalized ableism or however you want to describe it, the fear that someone's going to perceive you as being less than. And there's all these things, especially in American culture of like, if you have trouble hearing, people assume your processing or your intelligence is somehow impacted by it as well. And then on top of that, my mother and father both have hearing loss. My mother has something called profound hearing loss, which is basic, you know, she just lives in in deafness. And I've just seen how people treat her and how difficult life is because of this hearing loss. And so I think it just took me a number of years to accept it within myself. And then, you know, really until the last year or so to begin talking about it with friends and loved ones and finally with students, because I teach undergrad and graduate students, I was so afraid for that to be part of the way that I identified myself, or I was afraid that students would see me as less engaging, less vigorous, or somehow outmoded or outdated. And it was actually, as I started to share it, the reaction from my friends and family and from students was the complete opposite. People have been so incredibly supportive. And I have friends who I've known for you know, 10, 20 years who come up and say, I, I lost my hearing in one year and I really never tell anybody. And it's people that I know well. So I think there's this stigma and whether it's induced by outside forces or culture, society, or, you know, in my case, it's something you kind of put on yourself that a lot of people struggle with to come out and say, this is part of how I live. This is who I am. And I'm not less intelligent or less engaging. It just is, you know, an obstacle that I'm trying to figure my way around. I mean, it seems to me that this book might well be a way of you coming to understand your relationship to writing and and hearing loss, but also writing as a way of thinking about hearing loss. You know, originally, um, these two brothers, Alex, the older brother, and his younger brother, Daniel, they were part of this story I wrote maybe 15 years ago. And I kept working on it and trying to develop a novel, and I just couldn't figure out what the larger question, the larger conflict was. And they had some family issues. Alex's little brother, Daniel, is 13. And he he begins writing or taking notes. He makes this composition book that really documents all the terrible things that happen over the 20th century. A never-ending list of tragic horrors from the 20th century with numerical values for each. 12. Hiroshima, 1000. 45. 1969 Santa Barbara oil spill, 500. 83. Cuban Missile Crisis, 135. 115. The End of the Beatles, 100,000. 327, the Second Boer War. 445, the Battle of Austerlitz. 
do you always play music from countries that conquered all the places our family came from? All you ever play is music by Germans or Austrians or Russians. All the records you listen to, all the pieces Isabel always practices. Don't you think you're just letting yourselves be humiliated over and over? He's trying to figure out the pattern. Like, you know, if we look at the bombing of Hiroshima, or we look at Chernobyl, if we look at all these horrible events, like there has to be a pattern. And he comes to the recognition there really isn't a pattern. And there's no way to stop these catastrophes from happening. All you can do are kind of take those, those broken pieces or those horrible feelings or those questions you have that aren't resolved and try and build something new from them. Wow. And that really, and that really came out of my own experience kind of working on this book. Catastrophe will never let you down. One morning at the beginning of November, I awake before my brother and try to imagine another amazing composition putting together a single symphony for each passing hour, with instrumentalists playing different kinds of clocks, watches, cuckoo clocks, grandfather clocks, ending with all their alarms clanging at the same time. I lie there and listen to my ears ring, and when my brother's calculator wristwatch rings out, I know it's time to get up. My first experience with classical music came from my grandfather, who was Yugoslavian, and he worked at the U.S. Steel Plant here on the south side of Chicago, and um, he was also a carpenter. And kind of looking at his life from the outside, he, he was a manual laborer, right? He was a working class person, and you would never, just from the outside, assume he had any interest in something as sophisticated, as elegant as classical music. But every time we went over to his house, he would be in the back room smoking and listening to these these amazing records. And just, you know, about seven, eight years ago, as I was starting to put this book together, I went by my mother's house and, you know, was helping her clear her garage out. And she had this cardboard box full of my grandfather's records. And I had completely forgotten that was a part of who he was. I always thought of him as this kind of gruff, tough steel worker. Like I forgot that classical music was such a huge part of his life. And so I brought the records home and was listening to them and, and really trying just to understand like, what did this person hear? Like, what did he find in these records? You're listening to Arts and Letters. We're talking with writer Joe Mina about his novel, Book of Extraordinary Tragedies. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Jay Bradley May. Let's return to Arts and Letters and our discussion with writer Joe Mino about his novel, Book of Extraordinary Tragedies. I start to imagine amazing composition number 167. Why not a symphony that describes the shape of the Big Bang or all of history, one that goes on and on forever? a different opening depending on the conductor's mood, or the weather, or the state of the world? Why not an endless number of beginnings, and as many endings as one could imagine? There's no escape, just the cold comfort of hands on handlebars, and a south side wind in your face. I hate everybody. Born, already dead, ever 
And I love these compositions. They're just so inventive and so unimaginative. So Jomino too, right? Um, let's talk about these amazing compositions and how they kind of inform Alex's way of imagining the world as music, but the extraordinary tragedies in the world and catastrophes and the family situation is a kind of discordant music. He's always searching for different albums, often by, you know, John Cage or, you know, musicians who are doing kind of experimental music, ambient music. So he creates these amazing compositions. How did you come up with some of these? They're just so inventive and imaginative. So somebody like John Cage, whose composition, four minutes, 33 seconds, which is just four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. The pianist comes out and sits down at the piano, opens the piano, and then and then sits there. And um, when that piece first debuted, it, it really, it, it was kind of the scandalous moment in composed music. People didn't know if it was a joke, farce, and, you know, it was composed in the late 30s and debuted, I believe, in the early 40s as a, as a reaction to the events leading up to World War II. And it was about silence. And some people, you know, read it as the West's lack of involvement in the war at the beginning or as a tribute to, you know, the millions of people who were lost during World War II. But it was the first time I heard or came to understand a musician who was willing to use silence as a piece of composition. And, you know, beyond that, he also wasn't afraid of borrowing from traditional compositions to create new things. And one of my favorite pieces by, by John Cage is this composition called Quartets 1 through 8. And, and what he did was he took about 16 different songs from like the 13th century, 14th century, 15th century, a lot of religious Christian music. And he would take one melody from one piece and put it over another piece. And it is this incredible composition that feels like it's a series of beginnings. And it's just just remarkable. And now, you know, we're completely used to musicians using various electronic applications to sample or take pieces mm -hmm. of other music and creating something new with it. But at the time that Cage was doing this, it was revolutionary. And I love that idea that we can't stop these terrible things from happening. What we can do is take these pieces and build something new from them. And that's exactly what, what Cage does in that composition. I go by the record store on 95th Street to look for an original pressing of John Cage's Quartets 1 through 8. It's a record I've been looking for for over the past 10 years, something my father and I used to do together. It's one of his favorite compositions. Even on the internet, it's impossible to find. I flip through the stacks, discover a foreign pressing of a Beethoven concerto, take it up to the counter, then remember I don't have any money. You're listening to Arts and Letters. We're talking with writer Joe Mino about his book of extraordinary tragedies. In my early 20s, I worked in, you know, everything from a plastics factory to restaurants. And um, in particular, this one plastics factory in southern Illinois the Solo Plastic Cup Factory. So if you ever went to like a party and you saw those red Solo Cups, <laughs> I worked at that factory. Really? <laughs> and it was one of the most humbling experiences in my life. sat in one spot for two hours and pulled these plastic cups off and then they'd move you to the next point on the station you know every two hours you'd kind of shift positions so you you wouldn't lose your mind and it was the loudest 
place I've ever been on earth, just these huge plastic presses. And you could scream at the top of your lungs and someone 10 feet away wouldn't be able to hear you. Let's hear Alex reflect. It didn't ever really matter. At the end of the line, at the end of the day, what remains is hundreds of thousands of small plastic animals, a jungle, an ark, the sum total of all our hearts and labor, indistinguishable from one another, each as flawed and as featureless as the next. I make toys that aren't really toys, only simulacra of real gifts that kids would actually enjoy. I make substitutes, placeholders for parents who can't afford something better, the false, almost shapeless figures, antelope, tiger, elephant, as forgettable, as disposable as the plastic bubble containers they come in. By the time it's over, by the time I can step out into the sunlight again and take the orange earplugs out, all I can see are the lurid neon colors going past me when I close my eyes. And I think there's this misconception that the people who are at that factory want to be there, or this is their only option, or they did something wrong, or this is the, the life they deserve. And working there for just a couple months, I realized both how unfair that assumption is and how incredible these coworkers and the one person who was, you know, reading Tolstoy in the break room. And you'd be like, oh my gosh, I had no idea this person had this inner life just from standing beside them on the assembly line. And then recognizing, especially for a character like Alex, who's in his 20s, because of his family situation, he doesn't have access to college. And so he's kind of forced to take these jobs that his own grandfather had to work and in the way that the education system, you know, particularly higher learning, the way that system kind of fails so many intelligent, inquisitive, so many talented young people. It has nothing to do with their lack of determination. It really just has to do with, you know, their family and their access to affordable college. And so out of that struggle and that feeling of, oh my gosh, I'm working at the same job my father did or my grandfather did? And is there hope? Is there any way out for me? That tension that I think so many young people, especially since the Great Recession, that so many young people are, are continuing to struggle with, that definitely inspired this part of the book. I try to make up amazing composition number 319 as I unlock my bike at the end of the day, but it all turns out wrong. I imagine a choir, like the one in the fourth movement of Beethoven's Ninth, singing lyrics that become more and more ridiculous as more plastic animals appear. The presses, the plants, the places where things get made, the places where people all turn to smoke. Those are the places that end up manufacturing other people like me. I am 20, and I realize I've been doing this for less than three months, and I'm already bored to death. The long-term implications are not so good. And Alex gets it into his mind after all these tragedies that are occurring that he'll coach tennis by virtue of positive reinforcement <laughs> right? <laughs> with yeah. these children. He understands tennis a little bit. But he doesn't really know how to teach it. I don't even know if he knows how to play that well. But he thinks that through utter motivation, he'll be able to motivate these kids. And it's kind of hollow. And we'll talk about it in just a minute. But I love this scene. It's so comic. Finally around 3.17 p.m., some out-of-shape-looking kids show up, a group of 7th and 8th graders, boys with uncertain peach fuzz mustaches, pimples, and unlaced tennis shoes. I ask, are any of you here for tennis? Some of them make obnoxious sounds with their armpits as a response. A song playing in my head Reminds me of the things you said And how they're coming true Great, I say. I'm Coach Alex. 
I'm here to make your tennis dreams come true. We're going to bring back state. A very pasty kid raises his hand. There's no finals for after-school tennis. Then the championship, whatever it is, I want to make you tennis maniacs. Does anybody here want to become a tennis maniac? All of them look at each other. Yo. One of them says, Who is this person? I am the future, your future, and it's about to get real, like John McEnroe real. Do you guys know who John McEnroe is? The boys all shake their heads. What, dude? Who? What? Do you have the internet in your house? If you do, you should go home and find out. Some of them actually get up to leave. No, not now, colleagues. Now is the time where we bond as a team. Hands out, everyone. The boys look at each other. Don't be afraid. The first rule is to do the impossible. Do what you think can't be done. guy's totally mental. I am mental. I'm mental about tennis and your success because success on the tennis court translates to success in life. Now put out your hands. The boys shyly obey. I reach out into my backpack and hand each of them an orange headband. One of them is pink. I hand the pink one to a large kid with gigantic bifocals. Didn't have any more orange ones, sorry. But this pink one, this is special. This makes you team captain. The kid nods dubious but still somewhat impressed. Put it on and assume the mantle of team leader. The kid pulls it on lopsided over his large head. Outstanding, I say. What's your name, team captain? Perry. Again, but this time louder. Perry. Did you see that? Did you see Perry assume an air of victory? That's what I want from each of you guys on and off the field. It's actually called a court. A court, exactly. Okay, now's the time where we'll come up with our team names. I point at a very pale kid. He looks stricken. You'll be Blizzard of Oz. What? Blizzard for short. Go on and don the ornamental garb. He gives a sullen face and puts the orange headband on. I turn to a squat boy with enormous braces on his teeth. You, you'll be Jaws. The Jaws of Death. You bring the hustle, am I right? No. The kid shrugs. Put on your headband and become one of us. And on it goes. Fancy pants. No. Shoe fly pie. Yo. Viking hair. No. Nothing exactly inappropriate. What? But no nickname any kid would ever want. Yo. Now, now, if you want a better nickname, you need to perform on the court. If you don't show the right amount of hustle, I'll have to downgrade you. One of the kids, a boy with longer hair named Brendan Woolley, who's been named Snakeskin, laughs. Snakeskin? <laughs> what? You'll now be known as Space Vomit. <laughs> I'm not fooling around with this nickname business. I want you guys to refer to each other by these names on and off the field. Blizzard of Oz raises his hand. Court, I say, on and off the court. Ask your mom, your friends, those of you who have relationships, ask your significant other to call you by these names. Any questions? No? Okay, let's go do some laps. Oh. The boys can handle maybe two laps tops. I blow my whistle hard, so hard it pops my eardrums. They don't seem to notice. Some of them hang onto the chain link fence that surrounds the courts. One of them lies down. One pretends to gag. Looking good, I say, one more lap. But none of them can make it past three. By the end, they're all on the ground, on their hands and knees, calling for water. Water, 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 water. After that, we work on our forehand, on our backhands, on our court positions. Twins, Ronald and Donald, who I christen McNugget and other McNugget, are much quicker than I expected. They both return my volleys with graceful aplomb. Okay, I say, I like what I see. You're all going to be winners. Then we all sit down together when practice is over and share a gallon of ice water. Each of you has a spark of greatness, I'd say. But right now it's covered in a layer of garbage. I'm here to help you find that spark and do something with it. I'm ready to fully commit to each of you as your new tennis coach. 
I'm ready to help you grow into men, but first I need to know, does anybody here feel like quitting right now? Yes. Yes. Almost all of them raised their hand. If you quit now, you'll be quitting the rest of your life. All of you have good hearts. We can work on the rest. Heart is what matters. Now let's put our hands in. One, two, three, break! It's a book of extraordinary tragedies, but maybe if we don't quit, we can overcome them. Yeah, I think it's it's those moments, right, where you stumble, where you fall down, that moment where you're humbled and feel like giving up, right? It's that moment it has nothing to do with intellect or uh, mental capacity. It really has to do with that willingness to continue on in spite of all those failures or maybe because or as a consequence of those failures. I think there's a way, you know, this really didactic kind of binary way of appreciating or thinking about your life of, you know, oh, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm successful, I'm not in school, did I get a good grade on this test, did I not, does my boss like me, do they not? And I think what Alex comes to recognize, it's in those moments of failure where everything feels like it's falling apart, that you find that commonality between you and the people that you love, your family. It's that failure, that moment where nothing seems like it's working out that actually we all share and that gives us this sense of interconnected humanity. And it's from that failure and the ability to kind of get up again and say, okay, this terrible thing happened and I have to give it another go. I have to try again. That is actually the thing that helps Alex shift as a person instead of comparing himself to these other musicians, instead of thinking of all the things that he's lost, all the things that haven't gone right, including his own hearing, to focus on, okay, all I can do is get up and try again. I sit before the piano with its missing keys. I follow the notes in my head, and when they end, instead of going back and repeating, I think of every experimental composition I've ever imagined, every silence I've ever heard, all the figments and broken pieces I've been collecting, and map them all out, find a way for them to all fit together. I change the key up half a step, and follow a major scale in an entirely different direction. I look for pauses, for places in between the notes where the silence can build, where the silence, not the music, is being shaped. And I think that's what my great-grandfather was trying to do, compose something that was meant to be unfinished, that was meant to be added to. The story of a family told in fragments and intervals and pauses, the moments in between history where all the living happens, the moments that almost always get forgotten, where all the exceptional tragedies and invisible triumphs actually occur. One by one, I add our notes to the melody, and as I sound it out, the room seems to shift before me. And I love this bit at the very end. So here he's kind of listening to his sister who is playing with the symphony. She hasn't given up. Yeah, so his older sister Isabel decides to get back into music and she tries out for this amateur symphony. She doesn't get in. She gets upset and then he kind of encourages her and she and she auditions again and she, and she gets to play cello with this amateur uh, citywide symphony. And so him and his his brother and cousin, they go to watch her play. I look at the program and see it's Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. And I know it is about his deafness, about his fear and hope. And I realize something interesting. Something finally becomes clear. Everything important is part of some larger tragedy. The beautiful failure of all human beings struggling against their own glorious mistakes. It's at that moment of weakness when people are most profoundly human, 
the one experience everyone has in common. There's just no running from it. All you can do is try and build something from the tragedies you face to arrange them, to put the pieces together in some new, compelling way. So we've talked about so much. We've talked about silence. We've talked about tying your hands behind your back. We've talked about these extraordinary tragedies that people have to live with and history and family. And we all experience extraordinary tragedies, or at least they seem extraordinary to us. What, what would you say to your, to your reader about hope and overcoming and not quitting? I think that it's really easy to feel overwhelmed by one catastrophe after another and that feeling of, um, you know, just trying to keep your head above water and, and that fear that um, you're going to be overwhelmed. And I think that, you know, especially considering the historical nature of so many of these things, it's really easy to get in that mindset of things not improving or the world feeling more uh, dire than it ever has. And I think what is important to me about, you know, my own experience or the uh, process of writing this book is it's a choice, you know, and it almost happens in the unlikeliest, smallest moments of instead of focusing on what I don't hear, trying to think of silence as its own kind of musical shape or in the moments that feel difficult with my family, focusing on what it is that I happen to, to love about these people. It's the conscious decision to find something that feels unlikely or surprising or beautiful and not the simple expectation that things are supposed to go a certain way. I fell in love with the sad stories of hope. So thank you, Joe. Oh, I appreciate that. Really, that, that means so much coming from you, Brad. Thank you. Broadcast from the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, you've been listening to Arts and Letters. Thanks for joining us. To check out past episodes, go to artsandlettersradio.org. Thank you to the following extraordinary composers, musicians, and singers. Joseph Fuller. Jason Kaminsky. Son Inzer. Elia Einhorn. And Adam Guan with a performance by Margot Siebert. Thank you to kid actors Logan Wells, Rowan Wells, Faith Wells, Gavin Harper, and Cooper Poole. Thank you to Joseph Fuller of Orchestra of One for the voice work and for helping to mix and for mastering the episode. Generous funding for Arts and Letters was provided by the Arkansas Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities Thank you to writer Joseph Mino and his amazing composition for helping us to understand different qualities of silence, tonalities of tragedy, and the extraordinary symphony, which is family. For Arts and Letters, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick. Let's heed these words from Philip Glass. The past is reinvented and becomes the future, but the lineage is everything. Arts and Letters is a production of Living the Dream Media.